world designs oi This episode of the Brutal Reality Digest Online Podcast is brought to you by New World Designs, Vancouver's finest selection of retro-inspired fashion. Located on West Hastings Street, New World is locally owned and operated in just plain radical. They strive to bring the best in vintage reproduction brands such as Collective, Voodoo Vixen, Hell Bunny, Band Apparel, Betty Page Clothing and more. They can also hook you up with accessories like jewelry from local designers. Aw yeah! New World Designs is also a recognized safe place by the Vancouver Police Department as they are inclusive to all who wish to embrace this retro look. Don't live in Vancouver? Unfortunately, neither do I. Luckily, New World Designs now offers an online store. That's right. Head on over to nwdvan.com and she can ship your groovy new clothing right to your door. Still not satisfied? Tell your pals at Brutal Reality Digest sent you by using the coupon code STAYRAD and get a 10% discount. Now that's a spanking deal, folks. Once again, that's nwdvan.com or if you're lucky enough to live right in Vancouver, head on down to 434 West Hastings Street and say hello to Jen and her lovely crew. That's New World Designs. Welcome to Brutal Reality What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Brutal Reality Digest Online Podcast, or as we have recently branded it, Bird Drop. <laughs> Today I have our fellow brute, Mr. Stuart Old with me. How you doing, buddy? Excellent. Good. And have, of course, this would not be the show if we didn't have a supreme guest, so we're, we're pleased to welcome Vincent Bucci or Boucher? Bucci? Bucci. <laughs> Vince Bucci. Head- Gucci with a B. Bucci. Yeah. The Italian Stallion coming all the way from Cochrane, Alberta, a.k.a. he is the headmaster, head brewmaster of Field and Forge Brewing. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, and I uh, I feel warmly welcome, so thank you very much. Yeah, man. it's uh, It's been a, a trying time trying to line up our schedules to make this work, but we did it against all odds. <laughs> Here we are. I'm driving home from work. It's perfect time. Yeah, what was going on at Field and Forge today? Uh, we were just filtering some cider. Some sudi cider? You're not allowed to say. Mm, uh, no, we were. Uh, I'm technically not allowed to say, but I can say that it wasn't sunny cider. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, uh, there you go. Yeah, you're you're a busy guy there at the brewery, but you're not working normal hours right now, are you? You're Tuesday to Sunday or something now. Uh, you know what? I've been working basically whenever the brewery needs me for the most part, which is quite frequently in this time of, of excess drinking in our society. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to put the time in as long as we can continue to turn out great beer. So, so when do you think Field and Forge will have its first good beer? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> for the folks at home, I, I sell this beer, so I believe in it. It's an inside joke. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, let's let's back it up because Field and Forge is a pretty young brewery. In case people aren't familiar with it, we're only a little over a year old, right? Or maybe more than that. Been brewing longer than that, but the tap room itself. So, how did you get involved? Were you there right from the the beginning? You know, I met the guys that were building the brewery uh, while they were basically doing some research and development. They were 
you know, poking around other breweries in, uh, in Alberta and, uh, you know, certainly Canada-wide. And I ended up, you know, running into them and giving them, you know, just a little bit of inside brewer's advice, you know, as far as I could, uh, you know, as far as I could, you know, as far as, you know, maybe how they, I think they should set up the, the facility and, you know, certain directions to go in. And, you know, I just ended up kind of seeing them more and more and more as the weeks went on and as the brewery progressed. And, you know, eventually it came down to the time where they needed to hire, you know, somebody to kind of head the show. And it seemed like a good opportunity for me. And uh, I was certainly up for for the challenge and, and have been happy to receive it ever since. So, uh, Vince, <laughs> I understand that you started your uh, brewing days with a rig on your balcony at your old apartment. Was that That's your first rig? That's a very rig? true story. That's a very true story. <laughs> so yeah, hopefully... Was, uh... Go on. No, no, you continue. I'll, I'll let you finish the question. Well, first of all, I just wanted to ask, like, what's that like, uh, brewing on a balcony? Was it a large balcony? So the balcony was probably three feet by three feet. <laughs> um, it was basically a tiny little cutout. Uh, on the second floor of a low-rise uh, building that uh, we lived in in Toronto. Uh, it was on Hyde Park Avenue, which, you know, isn't necessarily a main street, but you know, it was certainly a hell of a lot of foot traffic. And, uh, and you can certainly imagine the looks and questions uh, that came my way, you know, when a guy had a 10-gallon pot, you know, boiling up on a, up on a balcony as, as everybody kind of just, you know, peered up there. And the, you know, the... Uh, the unwritten rule of making beer at home is that you have to drink beer while you're doing it. So uh, I made a lot of friendly encounters, uh, you know, while I was while I was in my learning days. I'm sure you were. Did anyone like ask to buy any of it? Well, that's very illegal. Uh, oh, okay. And uh, you know, I didn't want to kickstart my career bootlegging. <laughs> um, I certainly had, to, uh, you know, my fair share of friends come by uh, for free beer. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the biggest trouble for me getting into home brewing was that, you know, I'd make 20 plus liters at a time and there's only so much beer, you know, this man can drink uh, before he wants to make his next batch. So having friends to come over and help me uh, get through it was, uh, you know, was a big part of the process. Absolutely. They're, uh, those, your friends really stepped up, it sounds like. They did. Yes. Nobody ever paid for the ingredients or really helped. <laughs> time into the brew itself because it's uh you know it's a pretty grueling eight hour day when uh you know when you're sitting over a hot pot in the middle of the summer uh you know just trying to just trying to drink the beer while you make the beer so what was the first one you made like did you start with lagers or no i made a session ipa uh and it came out a little watery uh not to get too nerdy on the brewing process but there's this thing you can do called brewing in a bag where you basically take all the grains and you put them in a bag and then you just kind of Steep them in a pot, and then when you're done, you just take the whole bag, throw it out, and you're you know you're ready to continue on. So, I did uh, my first brew post work. I think I came home at 7 p.m. and you know had uh, a couple friends involved because they were all really excited. And you know at the time I didn't really realize that on a perfect brew day it's about eight hours. So you know <laughs> starting at 7 p.m. needing to go to work the next day, I basically got about three hours of sleep after I you know, didn't clean up my mess at three or four in the morning the next day. <laughs> Classic. It sounds like... Uh, Classic. And were you single at the time? No, I wasn't. You was shortly um, after that. Though. <laughs> I, wasn't, 
the the mess that came after uh, a day's worth of drinking and brewing, uh, I came pretty close to being single uh, on uh, a handful of occasions, that's for sure. But hey, then again, who wants to break up with the guy that makes the beer? Well, absolutely not. Um, did you ever think you would end up out here in Innisfail or Cochrane, Alberta? You know, a part of me wants to say no, but I lived uh, I lived a couple summers in Med Hat playing baseball in my early 20s, and I just had this desire to get back to Alberta. Uh, and it was a bit of a bucket list thing for me to, to move out here. And, uh, you know, it took me almost 10 years to convince the, the wife to do it. So here we are. So, Vince, yeah. I picked up this book the other day called Tapping the West. Have you read that one yet? About the, I have not, no. The craft beer boom here in Alberta. I'm going to talk about some of the earlier ones here, such as, you know, like the Big Rocks and the Wild Rose and all that. So, But uh, if I'm to understand correctly, Ontario was way ahead of the curve on that. So what were the first craft breweries you remember hearing of growing up in Ontario? In uh, the original uh, Ontario craft breweries? Yeah, the first ones you remember. Well, I'd probably say the one that kind of, you know, really changed a lot for me was Mill Street. You know, I ended up kind of stumbling into craft beer uh, only because, you know, the big box beer I was buying started to give me rashes and hives uh, long before uh, I'd ever get the buzz that I was looking for. You know, so it went from uh, the $24 for 24 bottles to uh, searching for something that basically didn't affect me negatively. And I stumbled into Mill Street Tank House, uh, which basically, uh, you know, took me and, and I ran with it. But... You know, I, uh, I went to university down in Texas, you know, long before I really understood how fantastic, you know, artisan beer was. So I really got my adventurousness as far as trying new things down there since, uh, you know, as, as far ahead as Ontario was, uh, you know, I'd say America's probably 20 years further along. But, you know, by the time I was getting into craft beer exclusively, you know, it really started to, to pop up, uh, you know, all over the place and, and grow very fast. Uh, Mill Street probably my number one, uh, and then I'd say the summer where you know I was exclusively drinking craft beer, uh, Nickelbrook would have been a big one for me. Uh, Collective Arts was shortly behind them, but you know Toronto had you know a handful of breweries that have been around for 20, 25 years, uh, including one that I started my career at, the Granite. Uh, it's an English alehouse. I think they're in their 28th year now. You know, long before anybody cared about you know, craft beer in, in Canada. And the fact that they could keep that ship afloat, you know, just by having this little small following uh, in a small place in Toronto is certainly inspirational, you know, even to this day. Yeah, no kidding. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you also worked at Collective Arts before you came out here, did you not? I did, yeah. Collective Arts was the brewery I, uh, I left Ontario working for. I really couldn't say enough good things about not just working there, but the quality of beer and the learning experience that I had, not only being on that team, but getting to work under that unbelievable brewmaster, Ryan Morrow. So you would say then, I'm thinking that craft beer, craft brewing is here to stay. It's, it's got a presence in the market now that's not going to get pushed back out by the, the big boxes, right? You know, I honestly, I do lend a lot of the su success that, uh, you know, we see in craft beer to this local movement you know it's not just beer that people don't want mass produced you know like the people you know that i certainly surround myself with you know are the type of people that like to you know buy their fruits and vegetables from farmers markets to you know to figure out 
you know, where their meat's coming from and not necessarily go to the, you know, the giant grocery store and, and, and buy that, uh, you know, that factory quality stuff. Uh, and I really do think that craft beer is no exception. I, I think that the next generation behind us, uh, you know, really wants to know where the things that they're ingesting are coming from. And, and I can't say that I blame them one bit. Yeah, for sure. It was funny. I was just thinking about, I'm not sure how exactly how old you are, but I'm in my mid thirties. And you know, when we were kids, like fast foods was like a place where you take your family, like everything was marketed towards kids. And it kind of seems like that mindset is kind of going away. Like people are very more health conscious. Maybe it's because we're all obese now, but <laughs> speak for yourself. I think uh, well, I'm obese. I think that happened when McDonald's tried to put out their salad lineup. <laughs> <laughs> I was just talking to someone today about how cool their like the lore is though with like the Hamburglar and <laughs> Grimace. Is that his name? Yeah, Gromit. Yeah. Grimace. Totally. <laughs> so I wouldn't mind seeing that make a comeback. <laughs> I just wouldn't eat their food. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I think there's still uh, a big place in our society for uh, for the quick and dirty, though. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, definitely. And since you're you're not like Cochrane's pretty close to Calgary, I know you have lots of friends that work in the industry there. Like, have you noticed anything different since was it Molson that bought Bandic Peak? <clears throat> kind of disrupted the whole uh, barley belt there. Have you noticed anything? Um, you know, not at all. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, I'm, I'm super happy for, for anybody that gets the chance to, to grow into something like that. I think there's this, you know, there's this idea that, you know, when the big guys come in and invest in the smaller craft breweries that they're kind of killing a little bit of the charm. But, you know, me having been on that side of the world for, uh, for a little bit of my career, I honestly couldn't say enough good things about you know, what what corporate big beer is trying to do with craft beer. Um, you know, it gives them the opportunity to get that product in people's hands that never would have never would have had the opportunity to because you can only grow so fast. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, now guys like, you know, breweries getting bought up in Alberta will have the opportunity to expand, you know, outside of Alberta while maintaining uh, you not o- not only the original employees, but also the quality of the product. Uh, you know, I've seen my fair share of buyouts, and you know, from what I've seen, not a whole hell of a lot changes because, you know, you rip out the people that started it all, and what do you have left? And uh, you know, I I think the big the big players in the game, you know, have learned that uh, through all the buyouts that we've seen in North America. And I'll say myself that if I ever invested my money into a brewery. Uh, that would be my number one goal uh, that I was shooting for is is to have something that you know somebody like Molson Labatt Sleeman uh, you know wanted from me. That's uh, that's a big pride thing. Yeah, and I guess a, a yeah. lot of people might not realize a lot of the breweries around here. So I've heard there's like guys are pretty much working for free because they're putting everything into the brewery. So I guess you can't blame people for you know getting some fruits of their labor. Totally, absolutely, and you know we can't all be Kurt Cobain in life, and you know just not sell out. I mean, uh, you want to ask me directly? Fuck, I'd sell out in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, I think you've you've made it past twenty-seven or whatever Kurt made, so you kind of you kind of have to now. <laughs> I can start carrying white lighters in my pocket again. Eh? <laughs> so, can I ask you what the first moment is where you like felt it, like in your bones, that you could actually? learn how to be a brewmaster or you wanted to be the guy making it as opposed to 
because a lot of people like getting into it, right? But not everyone wants yep. to go the next step. I was just wondering, like, how early was that? So, you know, the the idea of uh, of making beer, you know, for a living, you know, let alone as a hobby, you know, it's something that just never made my radar, you know, even as somebody who grew up making wine. And it wasn't until uh, I ended up getting my neighbor's mail uh, in my mailbox, uh, who lived on the uh, apartment just right behind ours. And so uh, one day when I went to take him his mail back, uh, you know, I was walking up his, uh, his stairs to the second floor, and there were a whole bunch of uh, one-gallon carboys uh, on every stair leading up to his apartment, uh, you know, with, uh, with airlocks on the top just kind of bubbling and fermenting away. And so when I, you know, when I rang his doorbell and handed him his mail, I asked him what he was doing. And he told me that, uh, you know, he was a brewer at, a, you know, another OG brewery in Ontario called Black Oak. Uh, and that he was just doing some trial batches uh, so that he'd, uh, you know, get some recipes under his belt because he hoped to be, uh, you know, a brewing entrepreneur himself someday. And so that's kind of what sparked the whole, hey, you know, I know how to make wine. I've made it at home. Uh, you know, I like drinking craft beer. Why not give this a go? You know, so I invested, uh, you know, way too much money into, uh, you know, a little homebrew kit. And that's where my balcony comes, comes into play. But it really wasn't until, uh, you know, I lost my job or got laid off as an electrical estimator. And it was a job that I hated more than anything I had done in the past and thoroughly did not want to go back doing it. Um, and so, you know, I just had a moment, you know, uh, during unemployment where the wife told me that uh, I should find something that didn't make me, you know, as miserable at the end of the day as my last job did. And, you know, I've been pop popping my head into different craft breweries in the area in Ontario because, you know, that was my new hobby and my new way to spend money on the weekend. And, uh, you know, I just figured, hey, like maybe somebody would take a chance on me, uh, you know, having known really nothing other than a handful of homebrewing experience. And so, uh, you know, I just started sending out as many resumes as I could, you know, finding a job in the industry had become my new passion. Uh, and I was willing to do just about anything uh, for somebody to take me on. Uh, you know, and at the time, that was a really good answer, despite all the rejection letters that, uh, you know, I received uh, throughout that time. You know, before not, uh, before long, you know, I uh, had that place, the, the granite, you know, take a chance on me and just kind of really kickstart, you know, transferring, you know, what little knowledge I picked up in homebrewing into something a little more commercial. So I'm kind of curious. So there's all these different styles of beer. I was just always kind of curious about the, like, where do these recipes come from? I know you're always talking about your own recipes, so you're just building off, like, the the base that's out there already and making it your own? How does that work? Well, two things. You know, when I, when I sit down and I have a pint of beer now, you know, my passion is to taste it and try and figure out how the brewer would have made it. So, you know, I, I, I truly can't sit down and just drink a beer without thinking about, you know, if I needed to replicate this, how would I go about doing it? And as far as beer styles are concerned, I mean, there's only so many beer styles. You know, every, I'd say every year, you know, some new brewery puts out some wacky new style and, you know, it kind of takes off and becomes a trend. But, you know, the beer styles that we've known and come to love for the last, you know, hundreds, thousands of years, are pretty set in place uh and the guys that have been doing it for hundreds thousands of years you know are the ones that 
that basically wrote the book that we still use to this day. Uh, when I go about writing a recipe, though, I'm not necessarily trying to make something that somebody else made. You know, I've got an idea in my head, and at the end of the day, I, I just have this strong passion towards, you know, something that's refreshing and drinkable, uh, you know, more than just halfway or, you know, halfway through a pint or, you know, all the way through a single pint. You know, it's important to me to make something that, you know, after somebody's done, they kind of want another one afterwards. So, you know, that's really my goal at the end of it. Uh, and then as far as, you know, where the recipes come from, it's kind of a little bit in the top of my head. You know, I've experienced a lot of different raw materials uh, now throughout my career. Uh, you know, so I can take this, you know, this idea and, and kind of build it from the ground up. Sweet. So what's, uh, what do you think's your the top beer you've made in your career so far? Like what's the, what's your pride and joy? You know, I always go back to this, uh, to this idea where people knock, you know, beer like Coors Light for tasting like water. Um, and I find it so ironic because, you know, there's all these ingredients that go into beer that don't taste like water. You know, so the fact that you end up, you know, putting all these things that taste like something, you know, and coming out with a really clean product is actually a really difficult thing to do. So I'd say, you know, the lagers that I've made are probably my biggest passion because in that really, really clean beer, you can't hide behind anything. You know, going back to my very first homebrew batch when I made, uh, you know, that session IPA that I was talking about and then all the IPAs I made afterwards, you know, they were surprisingly drinkable uh, for somebody who really had no idea what they were doing. And I, and I look back on it in a, in a way that, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of talent to add, you know, a lot of hops to something and make it taste like hops, right? It's that, it's that balance uh, that's so important. And I feel like those, you know, the clean beers that craft beer has kind of moved away from and it's now slowly coming full circle back to um, are the ones that I'm most passionate about. Um, you know, especially competing against the guys that have all the equipment uh, to do what they're doing, you know, trying to do all that, you know, without, without the fancy million-dollar stuff. Well, I, I think that loggers definitely don't get as much appreciation from non-brewers as they probably should. Because like you say, there's a big difference between one that, that is satisfying and one that isn't. And for such a common beer, it's amazing how many go astray. Um, I, yeah. I was wondering, uh, if, if you were hiring like a brewmaster, what, what kind of person makes a terrible brewmaster? You know... I, uh, one of the best brewmasters I ever worked for, uh, I did a bit of a seminar that I had the pleasure of sitting in on. And one of the things that he said was, uh, the most important ingredient in beer, particularly craft beer is fun. If everybody on your team and on your staff and in the brewery are having fun, it's going to it's going to start to show up in the quality of your beer. And I am absolutely a strong believer, uh, in that itself. So you know, I'd say the number one worst quality in a brewmaster is an asshole. <laughs> That's probably a bad ingredient for beer as well. Any kind of asshole. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that segues into another. My next question is, what's a beer that you absolutely refuse to uh, put your name behind? Like a style that you're just like, nope, not a chance. Um, so I don't really like anything over the top. Uh, you know, I've. I've made a handful of double IPAs in my career, and I don't particularly like, you know, my own. 
you know, and there are some guys out in there that, that make a fantastic double IPA. But, you know, I, I really feel like it takes away from the, you know, the refreshing aspect uh, of beer. And I just feel like I'm drinking a, a whole, you know, mouthful of too much character. But hands down, my least favorite beer style is a Hefeweizen. Uh, I absolutely cannot stand that fake banana smell. <laughs> I was going to say, I certainly wouldn't refuse to make one. But, you know, it's an important part of the process to sample the beer throughout the way. And, uh, and when I have a half of ice in the tank because I've been asked to make one, uh, you know, it makes for, uh, you know, it makes for a, a grueling tasting period for me. I don't know if this was unusual, but when I worked at a growler bar... For some reason, every half we had just poured like shit too. So I don't know if that's like just the chemical makeup of it. It just like this foamy carbonated. I hated it because it would take me like 20 minutes to fill a growler. But I wonder if the high amount of wheat content in there that just adds uh, an additional amount of head retention, which is why the foam doesn't dissipate. But don't take that as a professional answer. I'm not quite sure why. Nope. You're on the record. Vince said. (laughs) All right, man. Well, I'm going to let you get on with your night, but I guess our last question is, what's some advice you would have for some uh, people with with beer dreams that want to do what you did? Because you you never went to college for this, did you? I didn't, no. Um, You know, I think think the one thing that probably made me stand out and the thing that, you know, I see, you know, with some of my subordinates that really stand out – is just the eagerness to, to do anything. You know, the, the early days of my career, I delivered beer for a living. Uh, I'd load 30 kegs into a, you know, into a small little van and drive it around Toronto. And I cannot begin to tell you how much I hated doing it. Uh, and I never told anybody. You know, and I just got back to the brewery and I had a big smile on my face. Um, you know, so I'd say... That's probably the number one thing, you know, be, be willing to do absolutely anything, uh, whether it's, you know, delivering kegs, washing kegs, uh, you know, cleaning bathrooms, you know, like the breweries need, you know, all different types of people to do different types of things. And especially these small businesses that can't, you know, go out and hire, you know, dedicated positions. You just end up wearing a lot of hats uh, and in some cases doing things that you don't like doing as much as other things. So, you know, an eagerness to learn uh, and a willingness to do absolutely anything. Because even to this day and as far as I've come, there's nothing that I won't do in my brewery. And there's nothing that I won't, there's nothing that I'll make my guys do that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. And I think it's an, uh, you know, I think it's an important brewing trait. And I think it's an important leadership trait as well. Cheers to that. So what can we expect from uh, Field and Forge here? Going into the finishing off this terrible 2020. I think you'd expect a handful of seasonals coming out. Uh, I know our uh, our mix packs are kind of making a splash right now, having the you know the ability to give people a little bit of a variety in a single purchase, which is nice. Um, but you know, upcoming, I just expect some fall seasonals. I think our summer lineups behind us now. Uh, you know, since uh, beer summer's almost over. And uh, I'm looking forward to making some dark beers and some beers with color again because I miss them already. Hell yeah, man. Well, thanks all for doing this, man. We will have a beer again soon. I sure hope. Yeah, absolutely, man. I appreciate uh, you guys thinking about me. And if you ever want to do anything like this again, just let me know. I like talking about uh, beer and myself.
<laughs> Keep up the awesome work, man. Thanks for talking to us. Cheers, Stuart. It was nice talking to you too, buddy. All right, buddy. Now go get drunk. You earned it. Bye. <laughs> Cheers, man. Thanks for tuning in to Bird Drop. Be sure to check out BrutalRealityDigest.com for more hilarious things by us. Brutal Reality. All right, folks. Stay brutal. <laughs>